0: tv and our affiliate actualhuman.com today we're going to talk about a bunch of really interesting subjects we're going to talk about electric vehicles and future developments where you might be able to drive almost halfway across the country on one charge also some updates on the used ev market there's some big changes happening there and then there's a development out of detroit where there was some vehicle title fraud so if you're into the vehicle title industry or that subject. We're gonna talk about fraud on new vehicles where there were some new cars stolen and sold under fake titles. And then sticking with the fraud theme on our investigative division, there were some pop-up companies that were defrauding corporations out of PPP money and also employment money. And then last but not least, we'll see an example of where mediation in a court case prevented an impasse that was millions of dollars, even when both parties refused to give in. So first, we're gonna talk about electric vehicles. And in this article, what you're gonna see is there are many examples of electric vehicles that are trying to get longer range. So what happens is, when you have a, I guess, a trip, that you're trying to go on, that maybe is going to be farther than you need to take a charge, a lot of people worry about whether or not they're going to make it on that trip without having to stop and recharge. And there's manufacturers out there that are trying to make that what they call range anxiety become a thing of the past, right, where you don't have to worry about it, you can just go on your trip and not necessarily worry about plugging in. And this article from Automotive News talks about how Toyota is working on their next generation of batteries where you can drive almost a 1000 miles, 900 plus miles. So this is going to be where if you go on a a day long trip, and you want to drive, you know, five, 600 miles, a vehicle with even a 300 mile range, you might have to stop twice, because that 300 mile range is not always what you're going to get you're going to have the range reduced because of the fact that maybe you put on the air conditioning, you put on the heater, you have a extra passenger in the vehicle, and sometimes that can cause the range to drop. So if you're in a Toyota in a couple of years where the next gen batteries will allow you to go 900 miles, well, now you don't have to worry about it, right? You can drive all day. Look at 70 miles an hour even on average that's still more than 10 hours driving most people don't want to drive that far right at 50 miles an hour that's almost you know 18 hours so 900 is going to be more than you're going to want to drive in a day anyways and of course you can charge up overnight this technology obviously isn't out yet but that's going to revolutionize the way that people consider electric vehicles look if you are considering an ev and you know that once a month or twice a month you go on a day trip even that's 400 miles 200 miles one direction 200 miles back or maybe even you know if you live let's say in a big city like atlanta and you want to drive up to lake lanier 150 miles stop spend a couple hours and drive back well guess what an ev with a 200 mile range you might have trouble right? And you don't want to be sitting for three hours charging up your vehicle. A 900 mile battery changes everything. And that eliminates the excuse for the majority of EV potential buyers. It also may affect the value on existing electric vehicles, used electric vehicles that are coming into the marketplace. And we're already starting to see that because there's a report that came out that talked about used electric vehicles well guess what the prices are dropping right this is something where the first generation of electric vehicles is not going to have the same desirability years down the road right you're going to have the first trial batch of vehicles pretty good opens up the marketplace but doesn't necessarily represent the highest and best technology electric vehicles been out for a while but they dropped dramatically recently now some of this is out of the uk but it reflects to north america as well they dropped almost 20 percent, according to auto trader right used ev market is changing fast because many evs that surged are now many companies are now delivering more Tesla Model 3 really started selling in high volumes in 2018, five years ago. That's a used vehicle. Part of the reason that used EVs had a higher resale value is there wasn't that many of them. Up until you know four or five years ago, they didn't sell that many new ones. Now that the used EV market is starting to hit the stride of when there was more manufacturing, that could be a higher volume and then, by definition, lower price. They're currently about 15,000 used EVs for sale each day on AutoTrader. 20% are under 20,000, right? So the volume is going up. There's more availability. And the biggest volume, of course, is the Tesla Model 3. This is the EV that's flooded the market first, and many mod- many buyers still want that model. Retailers are slashing the prices then of Tesla more than any other brand because there are so many of them. And this is something that we're going to continue to see over the next couple of years so if you're in the market for a used electric vehicle now may be the time to look and see what's out there because there's some deals that are happening and that's something that uh, you might want to take advantage of one of the things that is related to electric vehicles that we talk about quite a bit on this channel is vehicle titles And it may seem like a very small percentage of people that are affected by vehicle titles, but when it happens, it's a problem. This was a story out of Michigan where people stole brand new F-150s from holding lots from the Ford manufacturer. And what they did was they were able to get titles for them. And the reason they were is because they did fraudulent paperwork with a title company, and that's something you want to watch out for. If you're purchasing a vehicle and you are getting title work done by a third party, you want to make sure that the VIN number is legit, you do a proper VIN search, you're not doing any fraudulent paperwork, and titles can be forged just like any other document. One of the ways that it's done is when there's – fraudulent paperwork that's filed with the DMV, if they do it in a way that changes hands very quickly, sometimes the transaction of it being stolen is not discovered because they're not alerted by any tracking system when the vehicles go missing. And here's an example of a title certificate. Many of these vehicles were sold to unsuspecting people, and that's something that, you know, you lose out on your car and you lose out all that money. So you want to double, triple check your VIN numbers, do all your title searches. That's one of the things that people don't realize is there's not one place you can do a title search for checking all the possible backgrounds of a vehicle. You want to check liens, stolen, salvage, any claims, and not one place has all those records. The police department has stolen. The Department of Motor Vehicles has liens and ownership. The National Motor Vehicle Title Information System, NMVTIS, they have salvage and junk and parts only. So you want to check out all of those title locations to make sure that you're not getting ripped off and you're not being defrauded. Sticking with the fraud scheme, here's something that we've talked about on prior videos. What happens is you have a cottage industry, according to this article, which popped up over the last couple of years. And you've heard the ads on TV, employee retention credit, ERC credits, where if you were a company which got PPP loans or made it through the pandemic with your employees, you can now go back and claim credits for keeping your employees, even if you got PPP. What happens is you basically tell the treasury department that you had this many employees before the pandemic you kept that many or more afterwards, and they will give you up to $26,000 per employee, right? And it's free money. And it's good if you deserve it. But there are strict eligibility requirements. Okay, you have to have paid the payroll out to these people throughout that time. Many owners of businesses do not understand the criteria. Many times you can inadvertently overestimate what you're supposed to do. But it's worse than that. There are companies that are out there that advertise to business owners to claim these credits. Companies don't need any kind of a license. They don't need any kind of certification. They can just say, we'll get you these credits. Some of them will charge an upfront fee, but after a while, some business owners were hesitant on paying an upfront fee. And so the companies, the ERC, Refund companies said, look, we'll get paid entirely on uh, commission. So we'll get you your credits. And if you get the credits, you just give us a percentage or we'll take a percentage. So company feels like I got nothing to lose. So what these companies will do is they will take the the reality that it's easy to file for the credit and to dupe to small businesses. What they will do is seek money they aren't entitled to. So They'll file a return on behalf of the business that says, yeah, I had 10 employees and I kept 12 of them and I got this much money. And What happens is these ERC refund companies will just put all the paperwork in front of you, make you sign it. You submit it as a business or they'll actually submit it for you. and You get this money and they take a percentage or maybe they take it first and then they give you the rest. The problem is you're on the hook if it turns out that you weren't entitled to it. So let's say you file for seven employees at $26,000 a piece. That could be almost $200,000, 170, 180, right? And maybe this company takes 20%, so they get 40 grand, let's say, 30 grand. Well, so they have $30,000 for doing some paperwork. You feel like, oh, this is great. I got all this free money. And then you get a notice in the mail a few months later that says, hey, we audited you, and you don't deserve this money, you have to give it all back. You don't just have to give back what you kept, you have to give back the whole thing, right? The IRS is warning businesses to be on the lookout for third parties promoting this. These promoters actively mislead people into thinking they can claim these credits. The aggressive marketing of these credits are a major concern. There are very specific guidelines, not available to just anybody, but because the treasury department wants to get this money out, They take your word for it initially, and if it turns out later it wasn't true, then you have to give it back. They claw it back, and they claw it all back, not just your net. They claw back the gross amount, and then whatever this scam company got, they get to keep because they're long gone at that point. So be aware of these fraudulent tax filing players that are in the marketplace. You don't want to get caught up where – Not only do you have to pay the money back, but sometimes you have to pay a penalty on top of it. Sometimes now this company also has your private information for you and all your employees. Names, address, social security numbers, who knows who they're selling it to. If they are a scam company, they are probably not just doing one scam, right? They're probably doing other types of scams. This is something that we've talked about for almost a year now to be aware of and you want to check the backgrounds of the people involved most of these companies that we've seen doing this many of the principals have extensive criminal records fraud larceny sometimes narcotics trafficking so you want to make sure that you're dealing with the right kind of company when we come back we are going to talk about another type of fraud that affects a lot of consumers and we're probably going to touch on mediation there was a company that swore up and down it would never settle on a case and a mediator stepped in helped them out they did settle and turns out it was the greatest thing they could ever done so on the other side of this break we're gonna have our friends from actual human talk to you about access to licensed and certified professionals and we'll see you in about a minute are you tired of automated systems and chat bots when you need assistance Experience ActualHuman.com and connect with real professionals, not automation. At ActualHuman.com, we bring you a network of professionals who are excited to answer your questions and provide guidance. Getting started is easy. Let us show you how. Here's how it works. Step 1. Select the best date and time for your video call. Step 2. Describe your situation and the areas you're looking for advice. Step 3. Connect one-on-one with an expert and get the undivided attention that you deserve. Experience the difference. Visit actualhuman.com today and schedule your professional consultation. actualhuman.com, expert guidance from real people. Good, so the next story is about mediation. And mediation, you know, a lot of times it sounds boring, but here's a case where Ryanair, major European airline, their CEO, was involved in a major employment case. And he said, word for word, verbatim, hell would freeze over before they negotiated this case. Hell would freeze over. Okay, And that was their chief executive, Michael O'Leary. He has been the CEO since 1994. And again, 2017, hell would freeze over. So he was adamant about that. But sure enough, the company has agreed to the settlement of $5 million to settle the dispute. How did that happen? Mediation brokered. And how did this come to pass? What does mediation do? Well, here's what happens. Many times a party to a dispute, like in this case, the CEO, is believing that hell would freeze over. It's not like somebody put a gun to his head or tortured him or you know made him under duress accept something that they he didn't want to what a mediator does is it looks at the dispute and normally in a dispute the actual agreement is already there both parties probably already agree to the vast majority of the terms of a case and the reason why they don't initially settle is because they don't see that they only see the one or two fringe elements that are keeping the parties from coming together when a mediator steps in They don't have that same emotional attachment, that pride, that digging your heels in mentality that keeps the principles from coming together. So in a private, neutral, and confidential environment, both parties can put their case on the table. The mediator goes back and forth in different rooms between them, hears them out, and they can see the picture of the solution. In most cases, the answer is already there. It's just the parties don't see it. It's not that you have to force or coerce somebody into taking an agreement. This mediator, if they're really any good, will see the answer that already exists, and they'll paint that for you. Yeah, you might have to make a few little adjustments here and there, but normally they're very minor, and you get more back than you're actually giving up. When the mediator does that, they can take a case like this where one or usually both of the parties swears up and down, I'm never going to settle and shows them basically you already did settle. You don't even know it because the answer is already there. In addition, it does it in a way where you can still maintain your pride, you say face, you don't have to look like you're giving in. It looks like it's a win-win for everybody. Even if you don't think that a mediation or settlement is possible, do yourself a favor, at least step into the mediation environment. Let the mediator do the work. You don't have to carry the burden. You don't have to do the hard work of settling, let the mediator be the one that does all the heavy lifting. Let them show you. You can sit back with your arms folded and say, I'm not doing anything. That's fine. Let the mediator carry that load because that's what they're there for. They do it all the time. And if you want to get out of a conflict, because the longer you're in it, the more you're spending on legal fees, the more your mind is distracted from your primary business, you're not Focused on growth and positive business development. You're mired down in this case that can drag on for months or years, not counting the expense. And then, God forbid, you end up in court in actual litigation. As soon as you walk into that courtroom, your future is at the mercy of the judge or jury that's settling the case or that's deciding the case because you can't walk away from it. Once you get into the court, once that jury gets the case or the judge gets the case, whatever they say is gospel. You have to do it. If they say you have to pay a million dollars, you have to do it. And they are certainly not going to be of the same mindset as you, the other party, or a mediator. They're going to be just like, I want to get these people out of here. The judge and a court normally looks at both sides as being ridiculous. They don't see the honor of your case. They don't see the good faith of your case and only see the bad things of the other side both people bring baggage to a court case both people bring things that they've done wrong in a court case not everybody is clean hands so the court when they see that or a jury is going to say look both parties did something wrong we basically want to punish both parties so even if we declare somebody the winner we're not going to give you everything that you should be getting because we're going to slap your wrist a little bit for even making us go through this and taking it this far and the person who in quote maybe is the bad guy they might have to pay more than they thought or maybe not get as much as they thought having a court decide your future is the worst thing in the world you want to decide your future in mediation unlike any other type of settlement is completely voluntary if the mediator puts forth a suggested a idea which is all it is you don't have to take it you can walk away from it right in in arbitration sometimes it's binding arbitration if the arbitrator says you have to do this you do if the court gives you a verdict you have to do that mediation is your last chance of being your own boss and not being at the mercy of some other case so we're going to jump back and talk about investigations and this is something that people ask us about quite a bit they ask us well gee. What are the, some of the stories? What are the craziest stories you ever saw? The craziest things that ever happened with an investigation. And our investigative agency, Active Intel, you see the link on the screen. We do all kinds of cases. Fraud cases, embezzlement, asset search, verification of documents, document forensics, digital forensics, getting records from mobile devices, from computers, You all know, these computers behind me extracting out records, even deleted and hidden records, finding hidden assets. And in one case we're working on, it happened to be a family law case. Now, the the subject of the case wasn't necessarily to find wrong in the other person for the, these people to get a divorce. The divorce was already happening. But they were wanting to come to an agreement on, in this case, the visitation with children. And the visitation was being agreed upon by the parties. And look, this, the spouse who happened to be the our client, which is the wife, and to be fair, we've obtained permission to discuss some of the details of this case without any names or locations from the client. We never talk about cases, you know, it's all completely confidential. But in this case, the client, our, our client, which was the the wife. Has given permission to talk about some of these details because they're quite comical, actually. So the part, the couple was already separated. The husband had moved out. He was living in another house, and he had, while this case was going on through the court, a temporary visitation schedule. Let's say Tuesday and Thursday afternoon, pick them up, bring him back, bring him to school the next day, that kind of thing. So there was a 11-year-old daughter. That was the child of this couple, and Tuesday and Thursday, the father who lived, you know, separately was supposed to pick up the kid from school at two o'clock, take the kid for the afternoon, do whatever they're going to do with the kid, and bring him to school the next day. They would stay overnight at the father's house and bring him to school the next day, two days a week. Well, the wife was okay with that, and actually. For the permanent visitation there was some discussion that the visitation would actually even be more generous than that wouldn't just be two days a week it might be three days a week or even four days a week or maybe longer periods of time so the wife was was okay with that but what was happening is the husband wasn't taking advantage of all those days two or three times a month he was saying no i'm not going to pick up so and so today I'm not going to pick up the daughter today. She can go home after school. And the wife was wondering well, you know, if he's not even taking advantage of this, why would he want more? Why would I want to give him more visitation? So there were some financial issues involved too with hidden assets and how much income he had, that kind of thing. So we were tasked with finding out what was going on with the activity of this father, the other person. So we started out by doing some research on his income because his income had dropped dramatically when the divorce started and the income uh, spousal maintenance, you know, what most people call alimony was going to be based on the person's income. Well, what we did was we, we looked through some records with the company and we found, and some of you may have heard this story before on some of our other channels, that the father had gone to his boss. He was a salesperson for equipment and said, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to not pay me my commissions. I want you to set them aside, put them in another account. Don't pay them to me. I don't want my commissions. He was able to live off of his base salary and his commissions, the the boss, the the business owner was keeping for him in a separate account. And he was friends with the boss, so the boss was okay with that. And he was going to, of course, after the divorce was done, take that money back, but also the alimony was going to be based on the amount that he was making during this process, which didn't include the commissions. So we were able to follow the father to find out where he was selling stuff to. He went had a route. He went to different companies and were selling this equipment. So what was happening is he was still selling the same amount of equipment, but he was not booking the sales through his account, he was booking the sales through another salesperson. So he didn't get credit for it. And he was even telling some of his clients, don't book through me, don't order online through my account, do it through the corporate account. So by doing that, he was diminishing his income, reducing his income. So that was documented. The next thing that we were trying to document is what he was doing when he didn't want to pick up the kid, if he said to the to the mother look i don't want to pick up my daughter today after school he was always saying he had to work he had to, he had to work extra hours you know harder harder job functions and the wife was thinking well if that's true how come there's no income how come the income's not going up well we did some surveillance and we found that the guy was going to work on that day perfect example there was one day when The daughter that he had visitation of had to go for a medical procedure. Nothing nothing major, minor procedure. She had a little bit of a medical issue. And the daughter said, Daddy, I'm going to be really scared. Can you come with me to this appointment? He said, no, I'm sorry. I can't. I have to work. So this is one of the days when the daughter was supposed to be with him, and he wasn't. So we did surveillance. He left his house where he lived. And turns out he lived with another woman at the time, which he was separated, he was entitled to do that. He went to work. He stayed there for about 15, 20 minutes. He left his office and then went to Hooters for lunch at 11.30 a.m. And this is when the daughter's gonna be at her medical appointment at 11 o'clock a.m. He literally was at Hooters drinking a pitcher of beer and wings. Chatting up Hooters girls while his daughter was at this appointment. We had great photographs. We had a picture of him looking over his shoulder at the Hooters girl, with little yellow shorts, orange shorts, pitcher of beer, bucket of wings. Stayed there for about two hours. It was almost two o'clock by the time he left. He leaves Hooters and he goes to the gambling racetrack where he's betting, racing, animal racing. I'm not going to say if it was horses or dogs, because that might indicate their location. And while he was there, he's drinking again. He had a couple of shots. He had a beer. Now it's three or four o'clock in the afternoon. The daughter had finished her medical appointment. He goes to pick her up at the mother's house. And now it's five o'clock. And he takes the daughter along with his new girlfriend to a restaurant. And they had dinner. And he had another couple of drinks at the restaurant and we notified the wife, look, he's had some drinks, so you might want to check to see if he's okay to drive before he left with the daughter but he was okay to drive. So he takes the daughter to the restaurant, didn't bring her home to stay with him overnight. He said, no, nah, it's been a long day. I'm tired. I'm going to bring her back home to the mother's house, which he did. And then he went back to where he was living with this, with this girlfriend, this new girlfriend. So, he, he goes back to the house, and we're about ready to terminate the surveillance. And what happened was he gets in his car. It's 9 o'clock at night. He gets in his car and leaves, drives away from this new house where he's living with the girlfriend. And he goes to another condominium where he's got another girlfriend, and he stays there overnight. Now, I don't know what he told his second girlfriend, like where he was going at 9 o'clock at night and coming back the next morning. He probably said he's going out of town. So we had surveillance on that now granted look if you're separated from your wife and you're, you have a girlfriend and cheating on her that may not affect the marriage but it does show some bad faith because your daughter was supposed to be with you and instead of wanting to be with your daughter you'd rather be at hooters drinking beer or at your other girlfriend's house cheating on your whatever so this was a case where we had excellent surveillance excellent documentation of the finances excellent documentation of we even had our investigator went back to Hooters after he left and got the receipt with his credit card number on it with the pitcher of beer, the wings, and everything else to prove that he was there and was drinking at 11 o'clock when his daughter was at the medical appointment. All this was very helpful in negotiating a financial settlement but also a visitation where he still got the three-day visitation, but it was established that if he didn't, see his daughter on that day, there were penalties. There were penalties of finances. There were penalties of maybe not seeing her another time because the mother didn't want the daughter to have her hopes built up that she was going to see her father and then have them dashed, right? So it was structured into the agreement. The most important thing was the spousal maintenance was based on that higher income. So that's one of our famous investigator stories, Keep an eye on our channel. We're going to tell you more stories about surveillance and hidden assets and people doing all kinds of sketchy things on our channel. So hopefully you'll give us some feedback on what kind of stories you want to hear about on the investigative side. And we'll see you on the next.